Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 18. We're in this series on, on the God of Abraham, walking through the life of Abraham. You might say that this is sort of a mini-series. Chapters 18 and 19, we're, we're taking it in three different um, sermons. It's, uh, but they're, they're all fairly connected, dealing with, with how God is dealing with, with Sodom and Gomorrah. So this morning we'll be looking at chapter 18, verses 16 through 33. We're in the midst of the <clears throat> elections. Um, political season here in November is coming upon us. We want to remember to be in prayer for that. But uh, what's interesting about elections is uh, some of the attack ads. This, is, this has become part of, of American politics. It's not anything new. You can see old, ancient events. Uh, not ancient, but I would say in the past it, it has always existed. It's amazing to, to think about the things that have been dredged up about candidates, that you can pull something from someone's high school days and say, well, this tells you about who this person is, and we're going to attack their character based on this. We realize that these politicians have not always done what is right. Um, if you and I were running for politics, no matter how spotless your record is, people would find Something They can find something that you have done wrong, uh, a way that you did not do what was right in a certain situation. They would bring that to attack you. If God was running for office, people could find nothing wrong. They, they would find things wrong. They would twist certain aspects of what God has done and say that this was unjust or this was not right or he was not merciful in this situation or he was not loving in this situation. People do that all the time, but I think the point of our text here is very simple, and it's this, that God always does what is right. God always does what is right. And we're going to think about that theme as we read through these verses, that God always does what is right. And I hope that as we think about this characteristic of who God is, that again, that we will be transformed by understanding of, of who God is. We are transformed by the renewing of our mind. The most important thing about us is what we believe about who God is, because what we believe about who God is impacts and influences everything that we do in life. So what do we believe about who God is? Do we believe that he always does what is right? Do we believe that this is what this passage teaches? You remember in chapter 18, verses 1 through 15, we saw these three strangers come to Abraham, showed up. He wasn't really sure who they were, but he was extremely hospitable to them, showed kindness to them, and they came and had this meal uh, in the afternoon, a lunch of sorts, but it was a pretty big lunch that Abraham prepared for them, and they had this meal together, and um, we slowly find out that one of these men is, is the Lord himself, uh, his supernatural knowledge of Sarah and her laughter, and then the way that he pronounces that she is going to have a son, and it's going to happen in about a year. It's a, a beautiful picture, and we, we learned that nothing is too hard for the Lord as we looked at chapter 18. Well, here in verse 16, the story is continuing, and the, the lunch is over. Um, we're, we're moving on. And so let's, let's read chapter 18, verses 16 through 33, and hear a little bit more of the story. It says, Then the men, this is the three men, set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? 
seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let the Lord, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned. Interesting story here from the life of Abraham. Remember our main point, God always does what is right. We're going to look at this passage in three different sections, verses 16 through 19, then verses 20 and 21, and then the last verses 22 through 33. But God always does what is right. And in verses 16 through 19, we find that he has nothing to hide. God has nothing to hide. We see here that the men set out from there. They're, they're heading towards Sodom. So things are transitioning. They had stopped in at Abraham's place, but it was just a pit stop on a further journey. They were heading to Sodom. That was the goal of their journey. And so um, Abraham, like a good host, doesn't just sit in his lazy boy and say, all right, guys, see you later. He, he walks with them a ways, and he gets to a certain point, and this is later in the day, we would say the sun is probably setting, if you want to kind of envision what's going on, and the four men are walking, and they get to this place where they're going to part company. Um, and as they get there, the Lord speaks. Some say that actually this is, uh, that when it says in verse 17, the Lord said that this may be the, the internal thoughts of the Lord explaining what he's thinking. I, I actually, I think that he said this out loud, maybe it was to the two angels that were with him. But he's saying it so Abraham hears. Abraham knows what's going on here. And, and what he's doing here is he's, 
He's reasoning as to why he is going to tell Abraham what is about to happen. They're heading to Sodom to destroy the place, to judge Sodom for their sin. And God says, why would I hide this from Abraham? I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm about to do. And he says why. There's a few reasons. It says there, shall I hide from Abraham, this is verse 17, what I'm about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. God says Abraham is going to be a great nation. And part of being a great nation, part of being the head of all these other nations, is that he's going to be my representative. You remember back in chapter 17, God says to Abram, he says, Abram, walk before me and be blameless. And that idea of walking before God, we said, was to be God's representative. To, to, in a sense, walk ahead of God and show forth who God is. And so Abraham is supposed to be God's representative, to show the character of God. And what God is about to do in Sodom is an example of God's righteousness and justice. And he wants Abraham to see this and to know that this is God's hand. He's not trying to hide it. He's not trying to say, well, this is something that, that maybe, Abraham, you should be ashamed of. But he says, Abraham, this is what I'm going to do, and I want you to know this. Why? Because Abraham is to be a teacher. Verse 19 says, I've chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. I want Abraham to know what's going on here so that he can tell others about my righteousness and justice. Sodom more of their destruction is going to be an example of my justice and my righteousness. And I want Abraham to have this as something to tell to his children and to his household. I want him to be able to stand and say, do you see down there there used to be a city there. It was a city that rebelled against God. And he destroyed them in his justice and in his righteousness. Because that is who God is. He's a just and righteous God. I ended up speaking to a man this week different circumstances and he, he was he had told me that he had been in jail for 20 years not consecutively but throughout his life he'd been in jail for 20 years in part because of uh, the way he put it because of stupid decisions that he had made in his youth and he's he's in his 40s maybe his 50s now and he said that his desire in life now is to be an example to youth he, he wants to to get a hold of some young people and say this is the result this is what will happen if you continue in your foolish way that, that you cannot do these things and have them not catch. I want my life to be an example, to help maybe pull someone out so that they would not go down the path that I went down and ruin their life. And what God is saying here is Sodom and Gomorrah is, is such an example, an example of what happens when people rebel against God. It tells of God's righteousness and his justice. The scripture always is talking about how we are to tell our children and our children's children, we are to teach the generations after us of the righteousness, of justice, the holiness, the love, all the characteristics of who God is. Sometimes, even though God always does what is right, He has nothing to hide. There are things that we want to hide about God. That we want to present God as, well, He's just He's a, a loving and good God. He is. But if we ignore God's justice, we ignore God's righteousness, that our children and those that we teach will never understand what mercy is 
but we must teach all about who God is. If God is not afraid of hiding anything about who he is, then we should not be either. We should not be afraid of talking about the reality of hell, that there will be eternal judgment for those who reject God. We should not be ashamed of God's wrath and of his holiness and of his righteousness. We tell God has nothing to hide, and we have nothing to hide from others about who God is. We are all theologians. Abraham was to be the theologian for his family, the one who, who helped them understand who God was. Theology is just the study of, of God and how he works. And we are to know that because there are people that are following after us, and we are to teach them about who God is. And as we do that, there is nothing to hide in his character. So God always does what is right. He has nothing to hide. That's verses 16 through 19. In verses 20 and tw- through 21, it, it's, it says, it teaches us that not only does he have nothing to hide, but nothing is hidden from him. Nothing is hidden from him. Read these verses again with me, 20 through 21. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. God now tells Abraham, and he tells them, what is what he's going to do? He says that he is he's heading to Sodom and Gomorrah because of the outcry of the city. There there is an outcry that that has risen up. The idea here is that those that are being oppressed, that are being wronged in the city, are crying out, and God is hearing their cries. God has heard the screams for help that are coming out of Sodom of those that are being wronged by the people that are there, and his ear is tuned to these cries for justice. He's going down to see what is going on. It's interesting, when we think about Sodom and Gomorrah, we usually think about when we think about their sin, we think about sexual sin. And surely that's what's going on here. We see that in chapter 19, but it's very interesting in Ezekiel. I just want to read two verses to you from Ezekiel 16 that talk about what exactly was happening Sodom. What was their sin? Ezekiel chapter 16 verses 49 and 50 say this. It says, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. What was the guilt of Sodom? She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw very interesting. It says here, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. What would we put in there? We would talk about the sexual sins that you see in chapter 19, but what was God concerned about? He says that they were full of pride. That they had excess food. They had more food than they needed. And they had prosperous ease. And they didn't do anything to help the poor very interesting, isn't it? So what were the cries that God heard? God heard the cries of the poor and the need. God heard the, the cries of those that were oppressed, of those that needed help, that the people of Sodom were not helping because of their pride. It's an interesting side note there to think about that these are the sins that God is concerned with very often. Not that other sins are, are less in his sight, and yet, but at the same time to say that have access to food, have prosperous needs, and to neglect the poor 
is something that is an abomination before God and deserving of judgment. Judgment like was poured out on Sodom. Nothing is hidden from God. He hears and he sees what is going on in this city. And in response to it, in response to what is happening there, God says, <coughs> excuse me, that he is heading down to Sodom to see if what he has heard is true. Now, does God not know what's going on there? Does he really need to come down in some sort of human form and take a look around the city? Say, I've heard all these things and I've seen them from heaven, but I want to come down and see what's going on. God has already confirmed to us his omniscience, the fact that he knows everything. Remember this back in the first part of chapter 18, right? He knew when Sarah laughed, even though she stifled her laughter and his back was turned to her. So God knows what's going on. So what's the point of this? The point is, is to show Abraham and to show us the justice of God. That God says, I'm going to go down there and I'm going to see everything. I'm not going to react rashly. I'm not going to act based on, on one sin, on one thing that has happened. But rather, I'm going to go and I'm going to to see what has happened. I'm going to investigate. He says, and if, he says, I'm going to see if the outcry is true, and if it's not, I will know. Of course he knows. And yet what he's telling Abraham is he says, I'm going to go down there, and I'm going to see what's happening. I will act rightly. I will do what is right. There are times when my children sometimes fight. They have a dispute. Um, and sometimes I'm present there to watch the whole thing happen. Maybe I'm in the other room, and they don't know I'm there seeing it all. Or maybe I'm just sitting there and they are having this spat right in front of my eyes. And I, I know I know who's right and I know who's wrong. I know what needs to happen in this situation. But it may be that I would ask them, that I would sit and say, tell me what happened. Give me your side of the story. I want to know what you think happened. And then I'm going to say, well, here's what I saw. I know what's going on. I was there. I, I saw the whole thing happen. But the point is so that they understand, listen, I've heard you. I've seen what you have done. And now understand that what I'm going to do, the punishment, the consequences that are going to happen are just. They, they are right. And it seems as if this is what God is doing. He's saying, I see everything. And I want to show you that I really do see everything. Nothing is hidden from my eyes and I will act justly. God, the judge of all the earth, sees everything. If he's a judge, we can think that all the evidence is, is laid before him. He has all of the evidence possible. Um, and he will make the right decision. There are times when we don't understand God's decision. We think maybe he should have done something different. But we, we can know this, that he's not acting on partial knowledge. He's not acting justly. He's not judging people because he doesn't know everything that he needs to know. No, nothing is, is hidden from his eyes. There's a comfort here, I think. We live in a world that is filled with Sodom and Gomorrah-like oppression and sin. And it's good to know that God always does what is right. It's good to know that His righteous and His just eyes, they see everything. God sees and He hears all of the oppression. He hears the cries of those that are wrong, of those that are sinned against. Those things are not hidden will act righteously. He will do what is right in each of those circumstances. God always does what is right. There's nothing to hide, nothing is hidden from Him. 
then in verses 22 through 23, if I had to sum it, I think I would say that, that God's heart is full of mercy. It's full of mercy to all. I will be honest and say that I have wrestled with these verses and trying to understand exactly what is going on here. So let's walk through it and try to wrestle together and, and grab a hold of some truth. It says here that in verse 22, So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood, still stood before the Lord. So the two men, the, the angels that we're going to um, meet up with again in chapter 19, verse 1, they travel on, but Abraham stays, and God stays with him. And Abraham stands there before the Lord, and then Abraham draws near to God. It's a beautiful expression of this friendship that we've talked about, the relationship that Abraham and God have. It's a phrase that's used of us in Christ, that in the cross we have been brought near to God. Here it shows that, that Abraham is coming in humility, but also in boldness, he's coming close to this God that he is, that, that he knows, and he wants to ask him about what he's just heard. Abraham is concerned. You can think about why he's concerned. He's concerned for his family. Who's in Sodom? His nephew, Lot. It's a man that he loved, a man that he probably raised. And Lot is in Sodom. So he's concerned about its destruction. So uh, it's, it, if God came to me and said, I, I'm going to go to Ohio, I'm going to destroy the whole place because of its wickedness, um, I would say, well, my family's there. I don't want you to do that. Yeah. I'm concerned. He's, he's concerned for his family. He, he's also concerned for the righteous. It says, Abraham drew near, verse 23, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? We can think back to, to Abraham where he rescues Lot in chapter 14, and he, he heads up to the north and defeats the kings that are up there. And he doesn't just rescue Lot, does he? He rescues many of the, the women and the children that were there from Sodom, and he brings them back. He knew some of these people. He had, he had been friends with them. He, and, and maybe he wondered, maybe, maybe there's someone who is righteous there, who fears God there. So he's concerned for his family, he's concerned for the righteous, and in light of being concerned for the righteous, whether it's just his family or maybe his family plus a few, Lot is concerned for the character of God. And this is what's interesting. He says, will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Verse 24, suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Verse 25 is the key. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death, with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Now, what Abraham is not doing is he is not denying God's justice in judging Sodom. He knows what's going on in Sodom. And he knows that they deserve this judgment. So he's not saying, God, don't destroy them because they're not that bad. I mean, it could be a lot worse in Sodom. But he's not saying that. He says, God, you are right in judging them. But what about the righteous who are there? Are you going to sweep them up in the judgment? And he uses the phrase twice. He says, far be that from you, God. Far be it from you to do that. It's a difficult question. Are there any righteous people in Sodom? 
But one way we could answer that is to say no. Because Romans 3.10 says there are none righteous. So is there anyone that's standing there that says, in my own righteousness, I'm, I'm good enough, that I, that I can stand before God? No. Some people would say, actually, that, that Abraham is... He's got a false understanding of what of how God works. In other words, what he's saying is that no bad thing comes to the righteous. Bad things only come to the wicked. So we would say God that, that Abraham needs to learn the, the message of Job. That's what Job's friends said, right? Job, you're suffering because you have done wrong things. And Job says, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm not suffering because I am wicked. I'm suffering because God has chosen so that could be it could be that that's what's going on. I don't think that's what's going on. Here's what I think I'm wrestling with is that is Abraham saying no wickedness, no bad thing should ever come to the righteous or is he saying that judgment should not come to the righteous? If there are people who are righteous, if they are counted righteous, how are they counted righteous? They're counted righteous the same way that Abraham is counted righteous. Back in chapter 15. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. How was he counted righteous? By faith. And I wonder if Abraham's saying, are there any people in Sodom who by faith are considered righteous? And if there are, if there are God, then it would be unjust. It would not be right for you to punish them. Think about it this way for those of us who are followers of Christ. If Abraham is appealing to God's righteousness to his 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 justice if if we have placed our faith in Christ then there is no more wrath on us because Christ has received all of the wrath for us Jesus in dying on the cross took the penalty for us and took the judgment that we deserve he became our substitute and by faith we are now made righteous if that is true then it would be unjust for God to punish us for our sins. Because our sins have already been paid for by Christ. I think that's what Abraham is saying. He's saying, God, if there are anyone, if there's anyone there who has placed their faith in you, who's trusting you, and therefore is righteous by faith, it would be wrong for you, God, to sweep them up in this judgment along with the wicked. And so that I think Abraham is making a true statement. Abraham is concerned for his family, he's concerned for the righteous, and, and that concern for the righteous leads to this concern for the character of God. But, but the crux of it, that the core is that Abraham goes beyond what any of us normally would. We would all be concerned for our family. We'd be concerned for the righteous. We would be concerned for the character of God. But Abraham is concerned for every person inside. He is concerned for the wicked. Notice this. It's, he says, verse 23, Then Abraham drew near and said, Would you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place, the whole place, and not spare it, the whole place, for the 50 righteous? And then when God responds in verse 26, he says, And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare those 50 righteous. That's not what it says, is it? If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for the sake of the 50 
righteous. Abraham's prayer is not, God, pull out my family. Pull out the righteous and then blow up the rest of the place. Just judge them, God. His prayer is, God, don't don't sweep away the righteous with the wicked, but maybe, just, just maybe, God, in your amazing mercy and grace, that you would show mercy and grace to the wicked for the sake of the righteous. Think about the opposite. Think about Achan. Remember when Achan sinned? When they were supposed to go in and they were supposed to not take any of the goods, but they were to destroy everything and, and give everything to, they, they were just to destroy it all. And Achan steals something and buries it in his tent. And when they find him, do they judge just Achan? Or do they judge Achan and his entire family? His, his iniquity, his sin spreads to his entire family. This is a corporate idea that's, that's more Old Testament and, and more non-Western than, than we might understand. And Abraham is saying, could that work in reverse? Could the righteousness of the righteous extend and show grace and mercy to even the wicked? So Abraham begins with 50. I wonder if he was just kind of posing something hypothetical and then God actually responded to it. and said, yeah, for 50, I'll spare it. And then he continues to ask God if he will spare, again, not just the righteous, but the whole city. God, would you withhold your judgment on Sodom for 50? And then there's this kind of haggling that seems to happen. But it's not really haggling because it's not like Abraham says, what about 40? And God says, well, I'll do it for 45. It's not really a haggling. Abraham is just trying to understand the mercy of God, it would seem. He says, what about 40, God? Well, he starts at 45, I should say. He starts by going by fives. What about 45? God says, I won't do it for 45. 40? I'll spare the whole place. There's 40 righteous. Gets a little bolder. Drops by 10. <laughs> How about 30? 20? 10? And God doesn't miss a beat. God's not pausing. God's not stepping back and saying, uh, 10? That's a, that's a tall order, Abraham. No, he just responds. He says, just ten righteous, I'll spare the whole place. What's, what's Abraham learning? Abraham is learning about the justice and righteousness of God. Remember, God is teaching him that through this example of Sodom. But in this, in this interceding, Abraham is acting like a priest in many ways. And in this interceding, God is teaching Abraham about how great his mercy is. About how much he loves to save rather than that his desire is not to destroy the wicked. That if he could not destroy the wicked, he wouldn't. He would save. He would show mercy. And the other thing is the powerful effect of the righteous. The powerful effect of the righteous within a city. There was one, uh, a friend of mine said he listened to a sermon by Andy Stanley, and his main point on this passage was a little bit of righteousness goes a long way. A little bit of righteousness goes a long way. If there's ten people in that city, God will spare the entire city for the sake of ten. Now, think about that. Jesus says we're the salt of the earth. And there's an aspect of a, a preserving aspect. Are the righteous people that exist within the city of Louisville, within the United States, within the entire world, is it because of the presence of the righteous that God is showing mercy? I think that's a principle that we can draw here. 
and there's the principle that that a few righteous, a few who are seeking after God can have a profound effect. I think the point is that if there are ten righteous in the city, that God will spare it with the hope that those ten righteous could actually turn the tide, could change Sodom, that Sodom could could become a place that fears God, that does not deserve that, that righteous people come in by there's this beautiful hope that if, if there are a few righteous, things can change because, what did we learn last week? Nothing is impossible. Ten righteous people could transform Sodom and Gomorrah. What, what about us? What about you in your workplace? You may be the, the sole righteous person. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. God can show mercy to your workplace, to your co-workers sake of you. What about this church? We're smaller than normal this morning even. But nothing is too hard for the Lord. What could God, God do in this neighborhood of Bonaire with just the few righteous, just the few that are following after God? He could change the place. Because a little bit of righteousness goes a long way. There is a powerful effect of righteousness. Now, I got a lot of help this week listening to, I don't know if you guys have heard of Tim Keller, but man, he really opened this up. And just to see the gospel here now, hopefully you're, you're getting the inkling of it. I imagine Abraham doing what God told him to do, telling his children and the house, his household after him about Sodom and Gomorrah and about the lesson that he was to learn. But the lesson just wasn't about God's justice and righteousness. He could point to Sodom and say, you know, this is an example of God's justice and righteousness. But I want you to know this conversation I had with God, and God was ready to show mercy to them if there would have been ten. And he would relate this story. I, you know, I talked with God, and I said, I started with 50. And he said he would spare that whole place for 50 righteous. And went down. And you can hear Abraham almost telling the story, maybe as you know, he lived to be 175, maybe as a 174-year-old man sitting with, with his grandchildren and great-grandchildren. I don't know how many generations but listening to this story. But I think that, that kids kids kind of see into stories and, and I, I think there's kind of a cliffhanger, isn't there? Why does he stop at 10? Why does Abraham walk away after 10? I don't know, but I could maybe hear one of his great-great-grandchildren <laughs> chiming up and saying, Abraham, why didn't you ask God, will you spare it for one Watch the beauty of this. Would God spare the wicked, all of the wicked, for one? And the answer is, I'll do it for one righteous man. If there's one, behold your God. Full of justice and righteousness, but abounding in loving kindness and mercy. Say a one righteous man. He'll spare all of them. 
How beautiful is the gospel? Jesus is the one righteous man. Jesus is, is the man who came to a place that was like Sodom and never fell into its schemes, that never sinned, lived a perfect righteous life. Now, again, think about the beauty of this, though. What if God had spared Sodom? What about all those people that are crying out for justice? Is God capitulating to his mercy and not being just? Again, it's the beauty of the gospel that not only is Jesus the one righteous man who, who spares the wicked for the sake of the one righteous, but he is also the one who takes the judgment for all of their sins. The sins are paid for. The outcries have been heard, and justice will be done. But God in his mercy does not pour his justice out on those who deserve it. But he pours it out. So all the sin of Sodom would have been poured out on Jesus. And God would have forgiven for the sake of that one righteous man and that one righteous sacrifice. Just in awe of, of the beauty of this passage, and, and to be honest, there's so much more here that I, I just can't fully wrap my mind around it yet. I think the gospel is so crystal clear in this, and so how appropriate that we would this morning remember that we are saved not because of the righteous things that we have done, but because of one righteous man. That God has shown mercy to us because of the righteousness of Jesus. That God has taken his judgment, his justice, and his wrath that is deserved because nothing is hidden from his eyes and he's poured it out in the person of Christ. We remember Jesus this morning. We remember Jesus because we have no hope apart from him. And so together this morning, we take the Lord's Supper. We take it as, as a group of people who, apart from Christ, are wicked and deserving of judgment. And we say, because Jesus' body was broken, blood was shed, we have been spared.